choosing spiritual leadership in the contemporary American society can be compared to trying to make up your mind at a Swedish smorgasbord. Ministers, priests, rabbis, psychiatrists, gurus all offer peace of mind and many claim to be God's voice for this present hour. How can we choose the right spiritual leaders to shepherd us? If you have a New Testament handy, you might want to open it to John chapter 10 as Dave Wurtson exposes a critical turning point in Jesus' relationship with the religious leaders of his day. This group of people that's here this morning are some of the most precious, some of the most loved, some of the most important people in all the universe. As we think about spiritual leadership today, we think about churches, I sometimes feel like someone that's at a smorgasbord. And you can choose this, you can choose that, you can choose that. And some of the food even poisons you. But people think very much in terms of which brand am I going to eat, which group am I going to join. And we think in terms of Protestants and Catholics and Jews. We think in terms of all the different Protestant denominations, Charismatics, non-Charismatic, Bible Church, Baptist, Methodist. That's the way we think in terms of the church. The church in the New Testament is much bigger than that. The issue is not what organization that you've chosen to follow. The issue is not what organization you've joined. The issue is who are you following? And what we're going to find out the next few weeks is that when Jesus looks at the United States, when He looks at the world, He doesn't see church buildings at all. They mean very little to Him. He doesn't really see Midlothian Bible Church or First Baptist Church or First United Methodist Church. He doesn't see all of these individual brands. His categories are much different than that. And in John chapter 10, as we go back to primitive Christianity, not primitive in the sense that it was undeveloped, in the sense that it was the primitive caveman kind of an idea, but the beginning, right at the very beginning stages as Jesus begins to talk to us, I think we get at the heartbeat of what He meant the church to be. And it's absolutely important for you to understand what Jesus believes about the church, what He thinks about the church, because your entire destiny as a person depends, and my eternal destiny depends, upon what I believe about the person of Jesus. As we go back to the very early stages of Jesus' ministry, the issue he presents to people is not what spiritual religious group you're in, but who are you following. And in our passage today, he's going to use a very powerful riddle, a very powerful riddle, a figure of speech, to communicate to an audience where many of them were very hostile to him what he was trying to do in founding the church in the world. Look at it in John 10. I tell you the truth. Some of you have verily, verily. And whenever you read verily, verily, or I tell you the truth, the idea is you can count on it. In the literal translation would be amen, amen, or amen, amen. And the reason we say amen, we mean you can count on it. You can verify it. This is what you can build your life upon. So when Jesus says, this is it, you can count on it. You can build your life on it. We can definitely count on the veracity of His Word. The man who does not enter the sheep pen... Now, notice automatically what the picture is. We've got an enclosure. And this enclosure is probably a four-sided kind of a courtyard area. 
maybe a stone wall because there's not much wood in the land of Palestine. So you want to go back, maybe if you live in New England, you think of one of those stone walls. If you've ever visited back there, they have large fields that are, that are bracketed by stone walls where they gather the stone from the field and then they build a wall around the outside. In Palestine, they do that same thing. And buy a house, you might pile up rocks around your house and make a four-sided courtyard. And it talks about that there's a gate to this courtyard. Usually there would be just one gate, just one entrance to this fold. And it's talking about someone who's climbing into that fold, but they're not going through the door. They're climbing up some other way. But whoever climbs up by some other way is a thief and a robber. So the riddle automatically gets this kind of like a, a good TV program. Automatically, we've got a dark night. We've got the fold. There's only one door. We've got a thief and a robber that's climbing up over this rocky wall, and they're trying to get in. Obviously, the point is, this thief and robber is not trying to get over the wall for the good of the sheep. If it's a wolf that's climbing that rock and jumping up on top of the rock wall to get down into the sheep, the wolf isn't going to be there to feed the sheep, to take care of the sheep. It's going to be there to tear them apart and destroy their life. It says, the man who enters by the gate. Now we change scenes completely. Instead of this violent thief and robber that's trying to get up to destroy the sheep, we have a man who enters by the gate. The fact that he can enter by the gate indicates that he is the shepherd of the sheep. Now the watchman who's standing by the gate that knows this flock and knows the shepherd opens the gate for him. He opens the gate wide for the shepherd, obviously because he knows him. And the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all of his own, he goes on ahead of them. And his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from the stranger because they do not recognize his voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, this riddle, but you know what? They did not understand what he was telling them. Now, if you like to fill out crossword puzzles, you like to solve riddles, and you love the way Jesus talks. Now, what's the question in this passage? Well, who's the flock? Who is the shepherd? What about the gate? What about the watchman? What about the thief? Who are these thieves? Who are these robbers? What's this idea of a shepherd that enters the fold and then brings out a group of sheep that belong to him? So we've got a whole series of riddles that we need to try to find the answer to. The encouraging thing about God's Word is that many times you don't have to flip all the way to the end of the magazine or the end of the newspaper or the end of the textbook to try to find out what the answers are. Many times in God's Word, Jesus will say, well, I'll give you the answer to the riddle, but you've got to listen carefully if you're going to comprehend what I'm talking about. So in verse 7, Jesus begins to explain his riddle. Jesus said to them again, I tell you the truth, here it is again, you can count on it. I am the gate for the sheep. Now what's strange about that? If I would have told you the story that I just told you about this sheepfold, about the gate, and about the shepherd that walks in to the sheep, what I, and I said, I'm not going to explain this parable to you, I'm not going to explain this riddle to you, what would you expect me to talk about first? Who is the shepherd? How many of you would have concentrated on the gate first? I mean, I would have read the way that I think. I would have read the first seven verses. I would have said, big deal. 
The gate isn't that important. If I was playing a clue game, I would have probably not even seen the gate hardly. It would have been just kind of in the background, part of the backdrop. Jesus begins by telling us the first answer is he is the gate. And look what he says about the gate. For I am the gate for the sheep. All who ever came before me were thieves and robbers. But the sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come in and he will go out and he will find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they might have life, that they might have it to the full. Jesus begins by identifying himself as the gate. He's saying that he is the way into the fold. He is the way into what? He's the way into relationship with God. He's telling us also that there's thieves that are trying to get the sheep, to turn the sheep away from the fold, away from the shepherd. Now, who would these thieves be? Well, Jesus doesn't come out directly. Jesus has not come out directly in this passage and explain to us who the thieves and robbers are. But we can get a good idea because like we've often stressed to you, we need to read through these books consecutively, beginning with chapter 1, reading all the way through the book. Turn back to chapter 9, verse 40, and we might get some idea about who Jesus had in mind when he talked about thieves and robbers. Verse 40, some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this, and they asked, What? Are we blind too? Jesus said, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. In the Gospel of John, Jesus is in a mortal conflict with some religious leaders. These religious leaders specifically were the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes of ancient Judaism in the first century. Now, we're not being anti-Semitic here because this would be true of any kind of false teaching. And I want you to be very clear that in this passage, we're not talking about Christianity as a religion versus Judaism as a religion. In fact, if you want to compare Christianity and Judaism as a religion, there would be some human value, some good moral principles in both religions. Jesus is talking about something much bigger than what brand of religion you might follow, whether it's Islam or Judaism or Christianity as a culture. What Jesus was talking about at the end of chapter 9 was that he had just healed a man who was born blind. No one had ever done that before in the history of the world. No one had ever given sight to a man who was born blind. There was no chance that it was some kind of a psychosomatic blindness. There was no chance that the man just had some kind of a condition that could easily be rectified. He was born without the organs of sight. He could not see. And Jesus healed him. And when this blind man went before the Pharisees, the religious leaders of his day, which was what should have been done because those leaders were responsible to evaluate spiritual phenomenon. If there was a messianic claim, if there was a leader that was asking people to believe in him for spiritual leadership and authority, these religious leaders were to evaluate that. This blind man stood before the Pharisees, and he was no longer blind. They started to ask him about it. 
They called in his parents. His parents were so scary because these religious leaders were beginning to cast people out of the synagogue. They were beginning to, to excommunicate people from Judaism if they believed in Jesus. And so even the blind man's son and the parents said, just ask him because they wanted to keep their hands off the whole situation. But the blind man gave this testimony. All I know about him is that I used to be blind, but now I can see. When the Pharisees said, well, he does it because he's in league with Satan, he said, how could that ever be? How could that ever be? How could a man that's so good, that's so kind, how could he ever be of Satan? It's just a total contradiction. All that I know is once I was blind, but now I can see. And this healing of the blind man came at a culmination point of many different miraculous signs that Jesus did in front of the Jewish people of his day. There's a tremendous challenge, brothers and sisters, in, in this passage. Jesus is saying, Jesus is saying that he is the gateway. He is the sole gateway. The only way to have relationship with God. He verified that claim by the tremendous miraculous signs that he worked. Specifically, in this case, the healing of the blind man. And what he's saying is that anyone else who claims I have the way, anyone that opposes him, anyone that stands against him is a thief and a robber, and they are robbing people of the most valuable possession that you and I could ever have. And that possession is a relationship with God. You know, this is an incredible thing. In fact, what I'm teaching right now cuts right across modern thinking. This is where modern thinking gets very, very rebellious. You see, it's hard for us to hear a man say, I am the gateway to being the people of God. If you want to become part of the people of God, you've got to enter through Jesus as the gate. There's one gate, and He is the gate. And anyone that tells you differently than that, anyone who tells you that there's another way, Jesus is saying is climbing up the rock wall, and they are getting in among the sheep, and they are destructive. They are turning people away from becoming the people of God. They are tearing people's spiritual lives apart. I want you to understand that I'm not talking about our particular religious group. It's very important for you to realize I'm not asking you to, to believe in me. Let me make the categories very clear. One day, when I pass on into whatever is beyond, I'm going to have my faith in something, in someone. What Jesus is saying, Dave, I am the gate. If you enter through me, you will be able to go in and out and you will have an abundant life, a full life. And as this passage develops, it becomes eternal life because John 10, 27 and 28 is going to say that no one can snatch me out of the Father's hand. Now that is my faith this morning. Every one of you have a faith. If you sit there this morning and you say, well, I believe, Dave, there are many gates. I believe that there are many ways. I believe the Islamic faith has their way. 
the Roman Catholic faith has their way, the Mormon faith has their way. They're all different, but we're all heading the same place. You have the right to believe that, but it is not scriptural. It's not what the Bible teaches. And you can read it very clearly for yourself because Jesus says, it's not what I say. What I say doesn't make any difference. Jesus said, I am the gate. And anyone who says that there's another way is a thief and a robber. And these are very serious, as I was praying about this this morning, these are very, very serious issues. Because when I get up, when we're conducting a service where someone has gone on, when their physical life has ebbed away, statements have to be made somehow, some way, about that person's life. And what I want to say to you is it's the agony of my soul. I have to do it at times. I have to do funerals at times where I really don't know. I don't know what the testimony of that person was. I don't know what their faith was. And just honestly, as a pastor teacher, that is the worst responsibility in all of the work that I have to do in the family of God. The worst thing to do is to have a service and to not really know what a person's confidence was in. And we can get very murky. People can say, well, you know, they were good church people. They were good members of so-and-so. They were a member of this group. They were a member of this group. They served on this board. And we say, that's all well and good. And we can talk about the value of human life. But the issue is, did they walk through the gate? Did they walk through the gate? You see, I walked through the gate when I was seven years old. I don't remember the exact date. You don't need to remember the exact date. I, date, I just remember what year it was. I remember I was seven. That is an inter- eternally important time for me. Because the Son of God that came to this earth said, I am the gate. Very important. What gate are you trusting in? What do you really believe? What's the basis of your faith? How do you know what you believe is true? And what I'm sharing with you, I know the basis of my faith is in the Word of the Son of God. If Jesus lies, then I'm lost. If Jesus deceives, then I'm lost. But He doesn't. And therefore, I'm saved. And those of you that have have that same commitment of faith, you join join with me when I say, Jesus is the door. You say, that's right, He is the door. It tells us as we go through that door, it tells us as we walk through that gate that we will be saved. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me, verse 9, will be saved. He will come in and go out and he'll find pasture. The idea of pasture in the Scripture is often used of the kingdom of God. It's often used ultimately of the, the millennial kingdom of God and eternity with God. And for example, David in Psalm 23 will say, Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And he begins that psalm by saying, I am the good shepherd. He begins by talking about himself as the good shepherd. And Jesus is recalling all this Old Testament imagery of the family of God, the household of God, the kingdom of God, of being like sheep that are being well pastured in a field, they're being well taken care of. Verse 10, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. And that's the way Jesus would label all false religious teachers. Whoever it might be, anyone that is not teaching, Jesus is the gate. Jesus labels, I don't label, Jesus labels as a thief. 
They are robbing you of the most valuable possession that a person can have. And that's your eternal life. Eternal life with God. Jesus said in contrast to that thief, I am come that they might have life, that they might have it to the full. Jesus wants to come into our life and not only give us eternal life, but eternal life starts right now and it means life that has fullness. Instead of being empty, it's life that has meaning. Instead of being life that's futile, it's life that has purpose. Jesus is the shepherd, the gate, that gives us meaning. Now in verse 11, he says, I'm not only the gate, but I'm also the shepherd. Now that conjures up some funny images in your mind because you say Jesus is the gate. What do you think of when you think of a gate? You know, I think of the gate to our backyard. We've got one of those chain link kind of fences when you open the gate. That's what I think of. And Jesus says, well, I'm the gate. I think of him, well, yeah, you're the, the entranceway that swings open. And now he tells me, but he is the shepherd. Well, Jesus likes to mix things up and he doesn't just follow nice, neat pictures. He's much more creative than that. But a Palestinian hearing what I'm talking about now would understand perfectly. Because some travelers, for example, if you go over to Israel, and, you, and I'd encourage you to do this, talk to a shepherd. Because when we think of sheep and shepherds here in the United States, we think in terms of a guy with a collie dog who sends the collie dog yipping after the sheep and they, they kind of come back. The Palestinian shepherds are totally different than that. We also think in the United States pretty much of driving a herd. We have cattle drive. I've never heard of a cattle following. We have cattle drives. But in Palestine, the shepherds walk ahead of their sheep. And after a, a nice day out there in the pasture and feeding the sheep out there on the hillsides of Bethlehem, the shepherd will call his sheep and he'll begin to walk back towards the fold as the sun begins to go down. As the sheep come in, they're counting them. This recalls the Lord's story. I remember the 99, one was lost. So the, the watchman and the shepherd are counting these sheep. When they all get inside, how many entrances did I tell you there was to this fold? Just one. What does the shepherd do? The shepherd takes his sleeping bag out right in front of that one entranceway and he sleeps right there. So he's not only the gate, but he's the shepherd. And no one can go in through that gate with him sleeping right there without tripping over him, without awakening him, without him knowing who is in there and what they're doing. So Jesus says that he's not only the gate, but appropriately, like shepherds would often do, Jesus is the one that's lying at the entranceway to protect us, to deliver us. He is the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. Verse 11. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd who owns the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The hired hand, the man, runs away because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. What in the world is he talking about here? Now, there's some real strange paradoxes in this passage. You're taking care of some sheep one night, and the wolves attack. Some wolves come up over the stone wall, jumping among the sheep, and there's about six of them. So it's not going to be an easy task. In fact, in the Mishnah, the Jewish uh, traditions concerning shepherds, there's a large section in there about shepherds. 
And one of the things the missionist says is that if there's one wolf that attacks and you don't do anything about it, you're responsible for the damage the wolf does. Like if the, if the wolf kills the sheep and scatters the rest and some of them are hurt, if only one wolf attacked, then you have to pay for the damages. But if two or more wolves attacked, then you're not responsible because it was too dangerous. I want to ask you a question. How many of you, if, if somebody in our church was going away on vacation and they said, we want you to take care of our sheep, and so you are out there taking care of them. In the middle of the night, you got awakened, and you go running out of your house, and you see a couple wolves in among the sheep, and it gets vicious. The wolves turn against you. How many of you are going to give your life and risk your life for those sheep? Well, I'm not. How about you? Have you ever fooled around with sheep? Sheep are the pit. They get bugs, they're dirty, and they're dumb. It's just a figure that sheep are kind of dumb. Now, I might do something for white-tailed deer. I really like white-tailed deer. And white-tailed deer, really, they're neat. They're aesthetically very, very pleasing. And another thing, too, is that if you take really good care of them, you can probably get them back. Like one time, a big buck came down and tore down our big fence. We had all these white-tailed deer in and let all the females out. Every one of them, about 20 of them, took them all up into the woods, and man, we said, that's the end. But the guy that took care of those white-tailed deer said, that's no problem. He went hiking up on the top of the mountain, because he knew their habits pretty well, and he started banging on their feed pan, and he had a bunch of feed with him, and slowly but surely, the does started coming out of the woods, and he just stood in the circle, and he saw this great big wild buck, you know, just doing his thing, and he was making noises and snorting everything else, but the food won out. And those crazy doe followed him all the way back in, right into the pen. They rebuilt the fence. They were right back again. Well, they're, you know, those white-tailed deer, they're beautiful to watch. Not the sheep. The sheep get up there, and if there's mud, they got mud caked all over their fur and everything. Who would ever die for a sheep? You know, it's really significant that Jesus didn't use the figure of that he takes care of deer, that he takes care of horses. It's so appropriate he said he takes care of sheep because that's what I'm like. I tend to stray away and I get lost and I can never find my way back. I don't really have a lot of aesthetic value deep in my soul without Christ. Neither do you. But it's incredible. One of the real paradoxes of this riddle is what shepherd would ever give his life for the sheep? But I'll bet you some of the kids here today can remember a shepherd who risked his life for sheep that he took care of. Can any of the kids tell me a shepherd boy that you know of that risked his life while he was taking care of the sheep? David. Remember that? When David came before Goliath and King Saul said, Man, David, you could never go out and fight Goliath. What did David say? He said, One day a bear came and the bear attacked the sheep. And David went and he attacked that bear and drove the bear away and slew the bear. Another time a lion came. David was the shepherd of sheep and God took David the shepherd boy and made him the shepherd king of all of Israel. Jesus is the good shepherd. He is like David, the Davidic king, which is part of the fulfillment of the promise because Jesus has the heart of David. David has the heart of Jesus. 
And what it's telling us is that Jesus, the Good Shepherd, not only lives for us, but He also offers His life for us. Now that's why He's the gate. That's why He's the exclusive way. I could teach you a lot of neat things that Mahatma Gandhi said. I could teach you a lot of great truths that Confucius gave us insight into human life. Whatever religious leader, Buddha, lived an austere life. There were some good ethical things about his life. But there's not another religious leader that I know across the pages of history that will look me in the eye and say, I gave my life for you. Now, why did he have to give his life? Because in the flow of the Gospel of John, all of us are dirty sheep. All of us are rebellious sheep. All of us are turning away from God. All of us, like sheep, according to the Old Testament, have gone astray. Sheep that go astray need a good shepherd to bring them home. And in the plan of God, the only way that the shepherd could bring us home would be to give his life for us. And the imagery continues. He not only was the good shepherd, but in John's Gospel, he is the Passover lamb. He became one of the sheep so that he could become the sacrifice of the lamb. And so the sin of the world could be taken away. Jesus says you know the good shepherd. You know the good shepherd not just because he gets you all excited, not just because he hypes you. You know the good shepherd just like you know all the people that really care for you. And very few people will give their life for you. And Jesus is the ultimate shepherd who lays his life down for us. That's why we sing to him this morning. That's why we're gathered. That's really why we're here. I think it would be an incredible thing if the Holy Spirit started to teach us. We got up on a Sunday morning and we said, we're going to gather together today with a whole lot of people that just love the Good Shepherd. And they love Him because He gave His life for them. And we're going to celebrate today. We're going to get together today. We're going to sing. We're going to learn more about Him because we're going to remember that tremendous time when the Good Shepherd delivered us and He gave His life for us. And we don't want to miss that time of public gathering because what a privilege it is to be able to adore and thank the Savior, the Good Shepherd that died for us. That's what church is about. Wherever you do, whoever you meet with, if you meet with those who believe He's the Good Shepherd who died for us, you are with the people of God. That's the category I want us to have. When you talk to people, I want you to be thinking of where do they stand with the Good Shepherd? Who cares where they stand with churches? Let's not get into that, but let's start to really ask the Lord to help us to see things from His perspective. Jesus talked to people not about what church they were a member of, what religious organization they were in. Jesus talked with people about where they stood in relationship with Him as the gate, as the Good Shepherd. He lays down His life for the sheep. The wolf, the false religious teacher, from the Pharisees to false religious teachers of our own day, all they want is your money. All they're into is to use religion as a means for their own material prosperity. And the cynic is right. 
when he says that religion has always got its hands into the pockets of the people just to relieve their fears and their insecurities. Religion, that's all it is. If all that we have here today is nice feelings and a little bit of respite from a troubled commercial world that we're living in during the week, if that's all we have, then we have nothing. But that's not all we have this morning. There's a whole lot of you that believe that Jesus is the gate. There's a whole lot of you that believe that He's your good shepherd. You're starting to follow Him. You're starting to listen to His voice. And as we do that together, we become part of that flock. That most precious flock that is literally around the world, that stretches out through time, that the gates of hell will not be able to prevail against it. Buildings will come and go. Organizations will come and go. But these sheep that God is calling out, this flock that is responding to Jesus, the gate, this flock that's responding to Jesus as the good shepherd is going to be here until all of heaven and earth rings for joy as the good shepherd is enthroned. That's what we're a part of. That's what we believe in. Verse 14, Jesus goes on and develops his idea of the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep. Every one of you that belong to Jesus, Jesus knows the sheep. You know, I heard about a Palestinian shepherd that they often would put the flock with several different herds. Several different shepherds would gather their flocks together. And I heard of a traveler in Israel that one morning got to see the separating of these herds. And I mentioned the collie dog earlier. We would probably use kind of a dog to separate our herd. But this visitor to Palestine described an incredible thing. There were about four or five herds that were mixed All these sheep were mixed together and they were milling around during the night and about four shepherds came early in the morning. And the guy was going to watch how in the world they're going to ever figure out which is which. One of the shepherds went a little bit away and he started calling. Freckles, spotted. And the sheep started coming one by one. He started naming off his sheep. And he called out the name of every one of his sheep and gathered them to himself. And the other shepherd did the same thing. That's what Jesus is saying. You know, Jesus knows your name. Isn't that incredible? The good shepherd knows your name. He calls your name this morning. He knows you intimately. The good shepherd calls his sheep by name. I know my sheep. That's a great thing. But also, the sheep know the voice of the shepherd. You see, as I talked to you this morning, if I threw in some things that were blatantly against the Word of God, if I threw in some of my own teaching, you know what? You know the voice. You know the voice. Almost instantaneously, God's people that are the sheep begin to say, it doesn't sound right. I've sometimes had a new believer that will ask me, Dave, there's so-and-so on the radio, and he's saying so-and-so and so-and-so, and it just doesn't sound right. They're just brand new in the faith, maybe only been born again a couple of weeks. Why? Because the Spirit of God is in their life. You know the shepherd's voice. And therefore, when the under-shepherds, those that are responsible for teaching you, are not teaching you the voice of Jesus, those that are truly the sheep will know that. They'll hear that voice. And I want you to be very sensitive to that. 
It's very strategic that you learn to listen to the voice of your shepherd. Don't listen to anybody else's voice. Don't ever listen to someone that's trying to claim to be a higher voice than that voice. Or they put themselves in the same level as that voice. You are the sheep of Jesus. You can listen to his voice for yourself. And then you'll gather together with other people that are listening to his voice. Just as the Father knows me, I know the Father. That's an incredible statement. It's a statement of intimacy in verse 15. It's saying that not only is there an intimate relationship that exists between the Father and the Son, but it's saying by a marvelous work of grace, we've been brought into the same intimacy. We've been brought into that family love and sharing and oneness. John 17, Jesus says, I pray that they might be one even as we are one. It's the same kind of an idea. We enter into intimacy with God. And I lay down my life for the sheep. The only basis by which we can know God, the only way that we can enter into that divine fellowship of intimacy with the Godhead is because Jesus laid down his life for us. And look at verse 16. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. We're going to end with this, but it's one of the most important things. I'm going to read it again. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. And all of God's people said, You say, Dave, what do you want to say amen about that? How many of you are blue-blooded Jews here this morning? Well, you better say amen. Let me read the verse again. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. And all of God's people said, that means you get in as a Gentile. I have other sheep that are not of of this pen. They also will listen to my voice and there shall be one flock and one shepherd, the reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. What is Jesus saying? He's saying from the first century perspective, when Jesus talked like I'm talking to you this morning, the flock was Jewish. The flock were all Israelites. The only way that you could get into the flock was by becoming Jewish. In fact, Jesus in the book of Matthew, even when he sent the 70 out, said, go only to the lost sheep of the tribe of Israel. When Jesus came in his first coming during his earthly ministry, his entire focus was on the Jewish people because they were God's chosen people by grace. But Jesus had a much bigger plan than that. And what we just read is an incredible thing From this time in Jesus' ministry, it's an incredible thing. Jesus envisioned a group like you. He envisioned other sheep, non-Jewish people, Gentile people that were outcasts, that were the enemies of God, that didn't know God. He pictures them being joined intimately into one flock under one shepherd. Jews and Gentiles and every other brand imaginable joining together as the people of God during this present time called the gathering, the church. The word church in Greek just simply means the assembly, the gathering. When the Bible wants to get down to the nitty gritty of what is a church, he says it's a flock. There's so much more we could say. We could talk about leadership. 
The only legitimate leadership are the leaders that are like the Good Shepherd. The only legitimate influence that I have at all in the family of God is as I follow the gentle, loving, self-sacrificial Good Shepherd. The only authority I have. If I whip, if I abuse, if I don't care, then I become a hireling. I become a thief. I become a robber. Flock of God, flock of Jesus, I want you to know how precious and how important you are. It's important. Have you entered the gate? Do you know the Good Shepherd? Have you heard His voice? Let's pray. While your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, Jesus said in another place, kind of a summary of what He talked to us about this morning. He said in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except by me. What are you trusting in? What are you depending upon for eternal life? I'm not asking you whether you've joined a church. I'm not asking you whether you're religious. I'm asking you one question. What have you done with the Good Shepherd? That Good Shepherd laid down His life for my sins and for your sins. You see, every one of them are dirty sheep that are outside the fold. We're in the wrong fold. Or we're out on the field messing around. But the Good Shepherd loves to go out and call to a sheep that previously didn't belong to Him. And He says, Peter, Sally, Catherine, John, put your name in there. Bruce, Phyllis, Jesus loves to go out into the fields of life and He likes to call His sheep by name because He knows those that will belong to Him. I think it's very possible that Jesus is talking to you today. And deep in your heart, He's saying, your name. He's saying, I love you. I died to take your sins away. Will you believe me? Will you depend upon me? You see, salvation begins in the quiet, confident faith of your own heart when you just say, yes, Jesus, you are the gate. I will have relationship with God, not by joining a religious group, but by responding to a person. So right where you're sitting, you say, Jesus, I admit that I need a good shepherd. I need a shepherd who gave his life for me, who laid down his life for me. When it comes to eternal destiny, I'm going to believe that you're the gate. I'm going to believe that you're the good shepherd who laid down his life for me. And I'm going to walk through you into the fold of the Father.